All right, let's uh, begin. We are looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And um, you can see from our notes today, we're looking at the role of human leaders in the church. How should we think about them? What are their responsibilities? Uh, how, how they relate to us and how we relate to them in the church. Because this was a problem at Corinth. This is part of that first major problem, chapter 110 through 421, which are these divisions, that is, differences of opinion, squabbles, quarrels in the church. And uh, Paul says, first of all, in 110 through 7, he identifies the problem, division over leaders in the name of wisdom. That is, they're thinking of the gospel. They tend to relate the gospel to some form of wisdom, Greek philosophical wisdom, uh, that kind of thinking. They're, they're, they're not thinking correctly about the gospel. And Paul says the reasons for this problem are, as we have mentioned already now, the misunderstanding of the gospel message. And Paul starts off by saying, you don't really understand the gospel in relation to your culture. Everything about Corinth is so countercultural to us. It's hard. Let's think about that this morning. It's hard for us to understand how they thought. You know, we we prize we prize things like humility. Humility is a good thing. You know, arrogance is not a good thing. That's not true in the ancient world. Not true in the Roman world. In the Roman world, humility is weakness, and arrogance is a good thing. Leaders are arrogant, boastful, proud. They're domineering. In the Roman world, that's looked upon as a great thing. That's the way you want to be. And so the Christian message comes along. It's just so so countercultural to that. It's so so different from the way people in, in the ancient world thought about how leaders should be and how things should be. And so uh, it's difficult for Paul who doesn't represent the kind of person, you know. Um, I don't want to jump on Trump too much here, but anyway, you know, uh, Trump gets a lot of criticism because he is rather arrogant, you know, and he is rather boastful and, and this kind of thing. And so we're not used to that. You know, many of, we know that all of our, our leaders are really very proud people. They're very arrogant people, but they hide it. You know, they disguise it. They claim to be people um, people of the people, you know. They claim to be, you know, but they don't boast about it like Trump does and all this kind of stuff. And so that's a little different for, for most people. That gets him a lot of criticism. But that was the common way in the ancient world, in the Roman world. This is Roman Corinth, remember. So um, Paul comes along and talks about the gospel the crucified Messiah, he comes in weakness. So they they don't quite they don't quite grasp this under this this way of thinking and so forth. And so um, Paul says, really, as the Roman world would look at the gospel, as the world of Paul's day, they would consider it foolishness. 
This is this is kind of foolish to them. And so Paul spends one eighteen through two five talking about there is a sense in which the gospel is foolishness. When you look at the message, the world would look upon it as foolish. When you look at the people, um, the gospel doesn't necessarily appeal to the most elite, powerful, uh, the the higher crust of society. It doesn't necessarily appeal to them. Uh, and you look at the guy who brought you the message. I don't represent the kind of Roman leader that people look up to. You know, I don't have, apparently his speech was not the greatest, maybe his appearance and so forth. He didn't represent that, that kind of person. And so uh, Paul, and we saw last week in 3, 1 through 4, their problem is, is they're thinking like the world. They're Christians. They have the spirit. They should be able to understand the gospel, but their problem is they tend to think like unsaved people, and Christians can do that. And we—that's our—that's our danger: is that we adopt the thinking of the world. We we adopt what the world thinks is important. We sort of adopt that. You know, we don't we don't always we don't want we don't always uh, judge things by Scripture. We judge by what other people think. And what the world thinks, and what they value, and so forth. So it, it can be difficult for us too. So uh, we're looking now at chapter three, five through four twenty one. So Paul says there are two reasons for this problem: a misunderstanding of the gospel message, but there's also a second problem for these quarrels and squabbles, and that is you don't understand the role of leaders of human leaders and the church and how that operates together. But before we can do that, we must uh, have our quiz. So, one, one must have the spirit to see the wisdom in the gospel. True, as Paul says, that they miss it. Two, unsaved people cannot even grasp the bare grammatical meaning of Scripture. False. They can't understand the bare grammatical meaning. It's written in English, the NIV or whatever. They can read that. They don't see the significance in it. They don't see how it relates to them. They can't correlate it. It's uh, nonsense to them in a sense, but they they understand uh, that. All Christians have the mind of Christ. That's true. That's, That's true. Paul says in verse 16, 17 there that we have the mind of Christ. Because we have the Spirit, we can think God's thoughts after him. We can think correctly about scripture. We can read and understand things. Four, those who have the spirit can sometimes act like those who do not. We know that's true. <laughs> and five, those who said, I follow Paul, were commended by the apostle. Awesome. Not really, because he saw them as some sort of elitist group too. They all should be following Paul in a sense, but not at the exclusion of other teachers and, and you know of Christ himself. So we're looking, we're looking at uh, uh, three five through four twenty one now. A misunderstanding of the church and the gospel ministry. And I say here, the argument at this point has been dealing with the problem of strife in the church. At issue, however, is not simply quarreling, but also the Corinthians' misguided perception of the nature of the church and its leadership. In this case, especially the role of teachers. So Paul now takes up this question of how they are to regard their teachers 
using two illustrations, two metaphors. The metaphor of a farm, he compares the church to like a farm, and he compares the church to a building. So he uses these two illustrations to try to illustrate the role of teachers in the church and how the church should relate to them. He begins, first of all, here uh, with a direct statement in verse 5, and he says, uh, human leaders are God's workmen. He says, what after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each task. Now remember, we said that Apollos had been to Corinth. We meet Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Paul establishes the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the first part of the chapter. But then he leaves and goes across the Aegean east to Ephesus. And then he travels down to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, and then he starts his third missionary journey. Well, while he is, while, when he has left Ephesus, when he's left Corinth and gone to Ephesus and gone back to Jerusalem, this man Apollos comes to Ephesus. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla are still at, uh, at Ephesus. And uh, they instruct him and so forth. And then he goes on to Corinth. They, they sent him on to Corinth because he can be of help to the people there. So he has been there. Remember, Paul also mentioned some are following Cephas. We don't really know if they were following Cephas because he was the well-known apostle or because he had been there. There's no indication in the book of Acts that he's been there. We just don't know. if he. There's not, nothing to indicate he traveled outside of Palestine. Uh, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church says he was he came to Rome and established the Church of Rome and was the first pope. But that's nonsense. We, we know Paul is writing the church. He's writing after this epistle, after First and Second Corinthians. He writes the epistle to the Romans just a year or so later. He writes the Romans. There's no Peter there. The church was not established by Peter, and there's no indication that uh, you know he. There is indication he did eventually go there, and. Uh, and actually was uh, crucified, but not that he established the church. So we don't know that he had been here at this time. There's no, there's no indication of that, but it's possible. I say here, the Corinthians boasting in leaders like Paul and Apollos is clear evidence that the Corinthians are acting like mere humans, which he's talked about in verse 2, uh, verse 3. Are you not acting like mere humans, he says. Um, Beyond, but beyond that, their boasting misses the point of the Christian ministry. Paul seeks to bring this out with two rhetorical questions. What's a rhetorical question? One that you don't expect an answer to, really. If you just ask the question, but you don't actually expect an answer to. Uh, it's used in discourse, and, and sometimes we do it, you know. Uh, we may ask our children a question. We don't. We know what the answer is, you know, you know. Uh, but we, we we may ask it, but we don't really expect an answer because we know what the answer is already. And uh, but we're asking it in the sense of sort of a criticism, even though we put it in the form of a, of a question. So Paul is asking these rhetorical questions uh, to 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 get them to think, you know, and so. Um, 
He says, uh, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Uh, servants through whom you came to believe. Paul and Apollos were servants through whom the Corinthians came to believe. The emphasis on the fact that the Corinthians did not believe in Paul or Apollos, but through them they came to believe in Christ. And each servant worked according to the task given him by Christ himself. So Paul's point here is, you're focusing too much on the servant and not on the Lord. Uh, because Paul and Paulus are just carrying out their assigned task. They've been given a task by God. They're carrying that out, but they're not the focus. Then... Uh, Two here, an illustration from farming. Now he begins his first illustration to try to explain what he's talking about. <clears throat> he said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. As verse 9 and the rest of the argument indicate, Paul is not thinking of conversion of individual Corinthians, but the planting of the church as such. You, plural, are God's field. So often this is cited in the sense of what happens when a lot of people get saved. They don't usually hear the gospel the first time and accept Christ. Some do. But most often we say a seed is planted. You know, we plant, somebody plants a seed. And then maybe some months, some years later, somebody else comes along and they say something. And it takes time and so forth. And sometimes this is used in that sense. Somebody planted the seed, somebody comes along and waters it and so forth. But that's not what's going on here. The planting of the seed is salvation. It's really the establishment of the church. We're talking about the church here, not individual Christians. So I planted the seed. Paul planted the church. The one who watered it, you know, Apollos comes along later. Paul has planted the church in Acts 18. He leaves, but Apollos comes along later to teach the church. So he watered it, continued his teaching. The one who has been making it grow is God to whom they all belong. The field or farm is the church in Corinth. So again, Paul says, our focus shouldn't be so much on the servants, but on God. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So the problem in Corinth is this wrong perspective. They think altogether too highly of their teachers. The question is, what after all is Paulus? What after all is Paul? Or answer with an unqualified nothing. That is nothing, nothing in respect to God. It's not that they are really nothing. They're servants through whom you came to believe. But in the big picture of things, God could have used anybody take the gospel to Corinth, you know. He didn't have to have Paul. He didn't have to. They're, they're not indispensable people. God is the one who makes things grow. So Paul and Apollos have essential tasks to perform for which they will receive re their rewards, but they have no independent importance. So from the perspective of the church of God, Paul and Apollos don't count for much or nothing without God's prior activity to bring them to faith, to cause them to grow. There's no church at all without God's work. 
So the point is stop squabbling. That's what Paul is saying. Over those whose tasks are nothing in comparison to God's task, to the activity of God, verse 8. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. So those over whom the Corinthians are bickering are, are, are only serve under God. Therefore, their mutual concern is singular, the growth of the crop to a rich harvest. So they have this one but one purpose. And the second half emphasizes here the verse, the diversity in terms of pay. Each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So God's going to take care of these, these leaders, these teachers. He's going to reward them according to their labor. Verse 9. For we are co-laborers in God's grace. That is Paul and Apollos. We are co-laborers in God's grace, but you, the Corinthians, are God's field. Now, this is a possessive genitive. You belong to God. I'm using the church here as a, I'm using the illustration of the field or a farm. God owns the farm, not Paul, not Apollos. We just work on this thing. You are God's building. So with an explanatory four, Paul picks up the main points of the analogy that Paul and Apollos are workers together in a common cause, belong to God, and with that, the Corinthians, therefore, do not belong to Paul and Apollos. They do not belong to Paul and Apollos because they too belong to God. And he drives that home. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. And at the same time now, he's going to shift images to a different illustration. He says... You are God's building. So he's going to, in verses 10 through 17 now, he's going to further elaborate, bring out some more points, but using the illustration of the church as a building. I say the whole paragraph can be summarized with these emphatic words, everything is God's, the church, its ministry, Paul and Apollos, everything. So it's, 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 it's not permissible. It's absolutely not permissible to say, I belong to God. I mean, excuse me, I belong to Paul. The only slogan you can say is, we all belong to God. That's acceptable, we all belong to God. So now we have this illustration from building in verses 10 through 17. Paul continues on. At the end of the previous analogy, Paul made a change of metaphors to God's building, which he now sets out to elaborate. He is concerned to warn in the strongest possible language those who are currently building the church, as he says. The paragraph is dominated by the indefinite pronoun someone else, no one, each one, and anyone. Since Apollos is not mentioned and since the urgency both here and in the further application of the metaphor that follows is specifically with what was happening in the church at the time of Paul's writing, the particulars therefore shift from Paul and Apollos to Paul and those responsible for the current wood, hay, or straw of wisdom. So Paul talks about building the church. So all of us here at CBC, most of us, have a part in building the church. Whatever activity we do, you know, that has a part in building the church, you know. Just shaking hands with a visitor who comes in, you know. <laughs> We can make a terrible impression on that person, or we can have a positive impression. That has an effect on our church, how it's built, how it's perceived, and so forth. 
So all of us as members of our church are have a part in building our church, building this building, this structure. So the argument here continues as a direct attack against those in Corinth who were responsible for these divisions. Paul's concern is that those who are sort of leading the church take heed because their present work is not going to stand the test. They're not really building with imperishable materials. They're building with wood and hay and straw, as we'll say. Verse 10, By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation of the church as a wise builder. He picks up their word wise, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. In this new illustration, three of the comparisons remain the same in the illustration from farming. The church in Corinth is the building, not the individual Christian. God is the owner of the building. Remember he said, you are God's building. Paul, again, is presented as the founder of the church, the one who laid a foundation as a wise builder. The phrase wise builder, the Greek term here is architectone, but it doesn't, it's not exactly like our present day architect. It's a person who was both the designer and the chief engineer who saw that the building got built. He's doing all these things. So by laying the proper foundation, the gospel message, Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul was wise. He was the wise builder. In contrast to the so-called wise in Corinth who are building the church with the wrong materials. And therefore, they're in a tent that, that could destroy the foundation. I mean, that's happened. <laughs> plenty of churches around here, plenty of them, started with a good foundation. But you can go there today, this morning, and you won't hear much gospel at all. You hear all kinds of things. All kinds of issues will be raised. But hardly anything will be said about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are, all, there are plenty of churches like that around here. Verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul warns the Corinthians that there's only one genuine foundation. That's the gospel, this basic content of salvation through Jesus Christ. So you've got to be careful about the superstructure here, since it relates to the character of the foundation. An improper superstructure can ultimately destroy the foundation. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation that I laid... Jesus Christ, the gospel, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, this is the primary point of the entire paragraph. The point being that the quality of the superstructure must be appropriate to the foundation. Paul laid the right foundation. Now we've got to have the right superstructure. But what does Paul intend by the six building materials? Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Although the materials represent a scale of descending value, we would you know, think gold is more precious, maybe. It's not really exactly true because those costly stones are costly. They're costly building stones, so there, it is a descending value. So you're talking about marble. You're talking about gold, silver, then maybe marble. That would be less expensive, wood, hay, straw. So even though they represent a scale of descending value, Paul's own use of the illustration makes no point of it. Nor does he place emphasis on the value, the costlessness of the first three in contrast to the last. His own explanation in verses 13 through 15 that follow picks up a singular theme, 
namely that some materials endure the fire while others are consumed. So his concern here in this illustration, we need to get what is his point, is not so much the individual items, but with the imperishable quality of some over others. Some things that people build with will last. And some things that people try to build a church with will not last. They just won't stand the test. For Paul, this gold, silver, costly stones represent what is compatible with the foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is going to perish is human wisdom in all of its forms. Verse 13. Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. So a day of judgment is coming, Paul says, and it will test everyone's building, that is, how one has built, whether of perishable or imperishable materials. The test with its resultant disclosure of the quality of the materials will determine the reward. So Paul says here that the kind of building one constructs, that is the kind of stuff, the kind of building materials that go into the workmanship, will eventually be seen for what it is. Now fire here, as I say, is a well-known figure for judgment. Here in verses 14, 15, uh, here as we as we'll, we'll make clear, the emphasis is on the testing quality of fire. It will judge each one's workmanship to see whether it has been made of quality materials. So Paul is saying there is coming a day, a day of judgment, that will expose every person's workmanship, you know, for what it is, whether it's gospel or wisdom, uh, because the day when it comes, he says, will manifest with fire, that is judgment, will test the quality of each person's work. Verse 14, for what has been built, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So in verses 14 and 15, Paul spells out this results of testing by fire. Those who stay with the gospel, as Paul preached it, who build the church in Corinth with gold, silver, costly stones, will see their work survive the test, and they will receive their reward. Those who persist in, persist in pursuing worldly wisdom, who are building with wood, hay, or straw, will see their work consumed, and they themselves will suffer loss, although their loss, Paul is quick to qualify, does not refer to their salvation. So Paul says we have to be careful, you know, about our work in the church, what we're doing. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And, you know, uh, I mean, I feel pretty confident about our church, that we're on the right track, we're, we're sticking to the gospel and so forth. I just say, you know, I read about churches, I know about churches who have departed from the gospel. They still have a cross out there, they... They still have preachers and so forth and teachers and so on. But there's very little gospel that's being spoken or talked about. The concerns are political, social. 
they're concerned about, uh, you know, uh, uh, social needs. They're concerned about societal needs. And those are worthy things to be concerned about, but they're not really the main thing the church is to be involved in. And so churches can get caught up in a lot of other things. We have to be careful about this, what we're building the church on. And so, and this is why, I mean, the major denominations have been in decline. You know? I mean, they're in decline because people go there and they see there's no gospel here. There's nothing here. There's really nothing about the Bible. There's nothing being taught. There's just, that's not what they're, they don't seem to be here for. And so the major denominations, many of them, are in decline because of that. They just don't have the gospel anymore. And people, Christians who come, can see that. They realize, hey, this is this is not this is not true. Uh, now, what is not clear here in this passage is the exact nature of the reward. He says, he says uh, the builder will receive a reward. And Paul does not tell us here exactly what that reward is. Obviously, this is related to what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5 about the judgment seat of Christ, that individual judgment. This is parallel to that. He's thinking here primarily about our work in the church, uh, primarily how we're conducting ourselves, what we're doing in the church, how we're trying to build the church, and so forth, and so on, uh, with the truth, the right message, and so on. But that they're related and even at the judgment seat of Christ, it doesn't spell out exactly what the reward is. Chapter uh, 4, verse 5 mentions the reward of praise, that we'll receive the reward of praise, and that would be a great reward, praise from God and so forth. Well done. We know the Gospels talk about some things, you know, we hear well done. Yes? So at the Bema seat, uh, so after, after the fire gets my stack of stuff, and there's a pile of ashes, and yeah. that's cleared away. Hopefully, there will be some gold, precious, yeah, silver, yeah. and precious stones. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we all have to admit, if we've lived long enough, if we, most of us, would, I would admit that I've done things for the wrong reason. You know, the motive was just not pure; like, wasn't the right motive. You know, we can do things to be seen. We can do things to be appreciated. We can do things so, so that people will like us, you know. We're not, our motivations are really a problem sometimes, you know. We don't really have the right motivation. And the things we do with the wrong motive and so forth are not going to probably stand up to reward. They're not going to be rewardable. So we can do activity and yeah. still be wood, hay, and stubble. Yeah, we'll still be wood, hay, and stubble. That's the problem. Here he's thinking about mainly about uh, sort of doctrine, teaching, primarily in this passage, it's more focused on the, the fact that the church is being destroyed or could be destroyed by the things that are being taught and so forth in, in, a, in, in the church at Corinth. Um, but it's possible for people to attempt to build the church with every kind of imaginable human philosophy. Human philosophy comes in, pop psychology... I mean, I hate to jump on Joel so much, but, you know, you just think of Joel and, you know, and, you know, he's... He made himself the easy target. <laughs> I know, you know, I know he does, you know. You know, he seems to have some gospel there, but he has so much, you know, that's appeal. 
remember I saw I was looking for some stuff on him and I saw him on uh, I saw him on Oprah and Oprah was I, I saw a clip I didn't watch Oprah <laughs> did she step on TV or not I, I don't, I don't no. know she used to be very popular but anyway there's, there's this clip of where she's talking to her audience and uh, she's and they're debating about Jesus being the only way and they get into a real fight because Oprah says well, you know Jesus can't be the only way that's obvious that's just good common sense isn't it Jesus can't be the and so these, there's a couple of ladies in her audience who are saying yeah Jesus is the only way and she says no that's impossible it, we all know that would if Jesus was the only way what about all these Buddhists right what, what about all these Hindus what What's going to happen to them if Jesus is the only one? So Oprah says, this can't be. So Joel gets out there. <clears throat> and so she asks him, you know, is, is Jesus the only way? Well, he's, he's slick. He's slick. He says, uh, well, I think Jesus is the way, but there are many ways to Jesus. So there's many ways. You can get there through Muhammad. You can get there through Buddha, you know. You're all you're eventually going to get to Jesus, but there's just a lot of different ways. So he, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to rile up Oprah and say, "Yeah, Jesus is the only way." <laughs> so he says, "Well, Jesus is the way, but you know, there's just other ways to get to Jesus, kind of thing." So um, that's what we have, and this this goes on in many many churches. All kinds of things are promoted as the gospel and so forth. But at this judgment, things will be shown for what they were. Whether they have any character of Christ or the gospel, that'll be seen. Verse 16. Don't you know, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So in verses 16 and 17, Paul carries the imagery of 9 through 15 a step further by specifying the kind of building that he and the others have been erecting, namely God's temple in Corinth. So he uses the analogy of a temple. God is building a temple in Corinth. This church is like a temple. It's clear from their current behavior that they do not know, or at least have not seriously considered the implications of who they are as God's people in Corinth. Now this imagery of the temple is something they easily understood. Because we know there were many temples at Corinth. And these people were always going to the temple. The temples were used for every kind of ceremony you can think of. They were used as restaurants. People went there and ate food. They had parties there, birthday parties. They had civic. They celebrated the gods. People were constantly going to the temple. So they understood this imagery as practicing pagans, That uh, what the temples are. But Paul is calling to their attention that since there's only one God, which they would admit to, then there can really only be one true temple in a sense. And they are that temple. God's Spirit lives in your midst, he says. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, that's the church in this case, church of Corinth, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So as God's temple in Corinth, the church was to be his alternative to Corinth, both its religion and vices. 
But the Corinthians, by their worldly wisdom, boasting and divisions, were in effect banishing the Spirit and thus about to destroy the only alternative God had in their city. Therefore, Paul solemnly warns those who were thus wrecking havoc in the church, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. So the word destroy here speaks of some sort of serious punishment. Serious punishment. Some God, sometimes God does take serious measures. We know about Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, in chapter 11, Paul will talk about the fact that some have prematurely died because of the things that have happened at the Lord's Supper. Then this conclusion, 18 through 23, Paul says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, notice in quotation marks, so that you may become wise. Those who persist in pursuing wisdom who are thereby destroying, not building the church, are self-deceived. Therefore, Paul urges that they abandon their pursuit of worldly wisdom in favor of, quote, God's foolishness, which is true wisdom, the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the Corinthians think of themselves, remember, as wise. They think of themselves as having arrived at knowledge, as being spiritual people. And that's their problem. They've got to get rid of these false ideas. Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, <coughs> he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. And we looked at this verse before when we said <clears throat> that uh, the unsaved person looks at the gospel as foolishness, remember? And we said they do understand what the gospel is saying. They say it's foolish. Here's God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. God understands the wisdom of this world. But he has pronounced it foolish. So Paul gives the theological basis for the preceding exhortation plus its scriptural support. The way of stating it's the reverse of 118 through 25. There he, out, he set out to demonstrate that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. But here he says the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Exactly the, point, the same point is made now in terms of the divine perspective. And that's the one that counts. The world thinks that the gospel is foolishness, but God says what the world is putting in its place is foolishness. Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11 are cited here. That's the verses he's citing. He catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. To prove, God has always regarded human efforts to understand his ways as foolish. So they, show, they, they these quotations point out the futility of the wise. Those who approach God based on their own wisdom, apart from revelation. And so this way to approach God the way man thinks God should be, creating gods in their own image, God says that's foolishness in my sight. Verse 21, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. With a final emphatic so then, Paul brings the present argument to its conclusion. The words no more boasting about human leaders directly addresses the appeal in 1.10 through 12. In other words, let no one among you still be bold enough to say, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. See, that's to base our confidence in mere mortals. 
And Paul is going to direct them to the one they should put their confidence on one final time, to the Creator, who is the Lord over all. And he says that in 21b. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours. Paul now gives the theological basis for his statement, no more boasting about human leaders. Don't boast about them. Why not? Because all things are yours. These words are based on the final theological conclusion of verse 23, in which this statement is repeated and the ultimate basis added. All things are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God, as you'll see in verse 23. See, they say in their slogans, I am a, I am a Paul. With the analogy of the field, Paul changed that to you are of God. You belong to God. Now he makes the further transformation, all things are of you including Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. So Paul is turning their slogans completely on their end. He's turning them completely around. The Corinthians say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. And uh, not only because that, that's wrong, not only because that they cannot, they shouldn't say that, not only because it's, it's wrong to boast in mere human leaders, but because the opposite is true. There's a sense in which Paul belongs to them. Apollos belongs to them. They don't belong to Paul. So they have too narrow, too constricted a view. He says, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the, the whole world belongs to you because, why is that? Verse 23, you are of Christ. You belong to Christ and Christ is of God. So these final words serve as the ultimate theological basis for what has preceded. It's not that all things are yours in some selfish, independent and self-centered sense. They are yours because you belong to Christ and all things are His. So it's in Christ we possess all things. God has given us all things in Christ. But in Him we do possess all things. So we shouldn't say, they shouldn't be saying, I follow Paul, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. No. God, through Christ, has given all these things to Corinthians. These these men are servants to help them, to serve them. And so they shouldn't be looking upon them in this unscriptural way. Now, there's still problems here that Paul has to deal with, um, And that's what he's taking up now. Human leaders are directly responsible to God alone. To God alone. So even though they say these leaders are there to serve you, they they don't really answer to you. This is a tricky problem. It's a tricky problem. You know, that's the way it is in the church. It's a tricky problem. I mean, Pastor Ken is there to serve us, you know. As we'll see, he's one of these guys we're going to be talking about. And, uh, but his direct responsibility is to God. You know what I'm saying? Directly. Now, we can kick him out of the church, we can vote him out, we can do, you know, we have congregational government. 
So he can't just be reckless and do whatever he wants to. But ultimately, he has to answer to God before he answers to us. And that can be a hard thing sometimes because people in a church want a certain thing <laughs> sometimes. And it may not be the scriptural thing. You know, I hear this all the time from pastors, from you know, men I know who are out in the pastor. This is a big problem. They go to a church and uh, there are expectations that they that are not really scriptural expectations, you know. And they have a struggle because they want to be faithful to God and answerable to him, but then there are sometimes unscriptural expectations. So Paul deals with that here now in this uh, section. Human leaders are directly responsible to God alone. Given the concluding nature of the exhortations of 3.18 through 23, we may wonder why Paul feels compelled to continue. The Corinthians' theological misunderstanding of the gospel and the church and the role of the teachers has now been addressed. But at the heart of much of this is the attitude of many toward Paul himself. These people are not just simply for Paul or Peter, they're decidedly anti-Paul. Not simply for Paulus or Peter, they are anti-Paul. They are rejecting both his teaching and his authority. This presents Paul with a genuine dilemma. On the one hand, he must reassert his authority. His understanding of the gospel is the only way to understand it. On the other hand, he must do that without blunting the force of his argument to this point, especially his contention as to the servant role of an apostle. So here's a tricky task. He's been making this case, we are servants, we're serving you, but even though he's a servant, he still has authority. He has authority from God. He answers to God and so forth. And so that's a tricky balance. So on the one hand, Paul Paul doesn't want the, he doesn't want the Corinthians to look at him and Apollos as monarchs and dictators and gods who just rule over these people. But at the same time, they are human leaders and they as pastors, they, you know, as apostles, they have they have authority. Uh, Paul begins in 4, 1 through 5 by making an application of the servant model and showing how that relates to their treatment of him. He changes images from farm to household, insists that he is God's servant, not theirs, and they are not allowed to judge another's servant. Paul says the Corinthians are to regard him and Apollos as servants, but this new point is that although, although he belongs to them, since he is Christ's servant for them, He's not accountable to them. So he belongs to them in the sense he's there to serve them, but he's not accountable to them. What is required of household stewards is faithfulness, and only the master of the house can make that determination. Verse 1. What then, uh, this then, is how you are to regard us. As servants of Christ, okay, we've talked about that, and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So I say this is not an entirely new topic. Paul's going back to the point of 3, 5 through 9. Paul and Apollos and Cephas do indeed belong to them, but that is to, mis- mis- that is to be understood in light of 3, 9, where Paul had asserted that they first belonged to God. This, he says, is how people ought to regard us as servants. In 3, 5 through 9, the word for servant was diakonos. Diakonos is the word that's sometimes translated deacon. And you know, in Timothy, it's deacon, but it's used throughout the New Testament just of a servant. Christ calls himself a diakonos. Paul calls himself a diakonos. They were not deacons, so the word 
diakonos came to be used as an office in the church of deacon. But it's just a general term for servant. So he says, men are to regard us as servants, emphasizing the servant nature of their task under God. Now the metaphor changes to that of a household. The first word, servants of Christ, the first word, servants of Christ, this word, is a more general term, but often refers to one who has the duties of administering the affairs of another. This is what we often call a steward. Men ought to regard us as, as servants of Christ and those entrusted as stewards, you could translate as, you know, the kingdom, as stewards of the mysteries of God. So a steward is someone, when I think of steward, I always think of the, all those 19th century English movies, you know, the Pride and Praise, all that stuff, you know, that my wife watches. I, you know, I don't watch, I sometimes don't watch it. I, I do watch it. They're good. They're good. But anyway, they always have in these large estates a steward who, um, who, um, who runs the estate for the owners of the estate. They don't want to muddy their hands too much out there. So they have a steward who runs, uh, the, the estate. And uh, so Paul is saying, that's what's going on here. We're like stewards. We're servants. Yeah, we're serving you. But we're really stewards who are administering the affairs of another. So men like Paul are to be regarded as servants, emphasizing their humble position. They belong to Christ. At the same time, they're stewards of the mysteries of God, emphasizing that they are trusted. A steward was somebody who was trusted. And they have accountability to God. Mysteries means the revelation of the gospel, now known through the Spirit, and especially entrusted to the apostles. Verse 2, for it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. What's required in stewards is faithfulness. They must be trustworthy. He doesn't say they have to be eloquent. He doesn't say they need wisdom. But they have to be faithful to the trust. Now, these things are, other things are good. It's good to be wise. It's good to be eloquent. It's good to have these other qualities. But the supreme quality, he says, is faithfulness. That's essential. Faithfulness to the gospel as Paul received it and preached it. Verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Paul now applies the general maxim of verse 2. It's required in stewards that a person be found faithful especially to himself and the Corinthians' attitude toward him. They have been examining, judging him. For Paul, verse 2 forbids such activity, since the criterion for judgment is faithfulness to a committed trust. Only the one from whom he had received the trust can judge him, not his fellow servants. For in this case, those who might be, or in this case, those who might be under him, the Corinthians themselves. So for Paul, all these human judgments uh, of the Corinthians uh, are of no consequence whatsoever. He doesn't, he's not really greatly concerned about that. The only judgment that counts is the final judgment, the final judgment administered by Christ. And this is so true that Paul says, he includes personal judgments of himself as inconsequential. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Um, it doesn't mean that he's irresponsible here. 
He doesn't mean he just does whatever. Uh, Paul Paul wants to he want, he wants to do the right thing. I'm sure he he uh, judges himself in the sense of he looks at his conduct, makes sure he's following the gospel. But the point is, his personal uh, evaluations of himself are ultimately irrelevant. It's what the master thinks. That's what counts, you know. And he says the one thing the master is going to look at is faithfulness, you know. And that's a big quality. You know, we stress it. You've heard it all your life, haven't you? I think about it because I'm older now and some people I know are dying. So people I've known in the churches and churches, and I think about their lives, and I think about some of these people, and the quality that you think about, many of them, is faithfulness. They were very faithful people, you know. Uh, I don't know if you knew the Walkers. Did you know Mary Walker, anybody? David Mary Walker. Remember Mary passed away, you know. But just a lot of people, they, she just passed away, but just a lot of people who pass away, I think about they were very faithful all those years. And that, that, that's the quality that is really, really stands out. And that's what we I'm sure we would all like in our lives. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. The reason Paul can make such bold statements as those in verse 3 is finally given at the end of verse 4. It's the Lord who judges me. But before he gets there, he feels compelled to add a qualifier to the statement at the end of verse of the, of the last sentence. I don't even judge myself as far as discharging the responsibilities of his stewardship is concerned. Paul says, my conscience is clear. He says, I don't judge myself, but, you know, my conscience is clear. I believe I've done the right thing, but so what? That doesn't mean that there is, that I'm actually acquitted because my conscience is necessary. I want to have a clear conscience. But personal evaluation of his own stewardship is irrelevant in light of the ultimate accountability to the Lord Jesus. It's not that Paul is aware of any breach of duty. No, I'm not aware. My conscience is clear. But the fact that he doesn't really know of anything doesn't really amount to a lot. It it just puts it on the level of a human court. If I look at myself, I say, Bill Combs, you're a great guy. You know, when I, when I judge myself, I, when I judge myself, I come across pretty well. You know, I, I look at myself and, you know, you're pretty good. But Paul says that doesn't count for anything. That the reason is because it's the Lord who will judge me. So the obvious conclusion is pronounced in the next sentence. If I don't judge myself, then you stop judging me. You know, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. Really? At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So Paul brings the imagery of this paragraph to his conclusion in the form of a strong imperative. Judge nothing before the appointed time. By nothing, he does not mean that they are to make no judgments. Remember in 5.12, in the context of immorality, he says, uh, what business is a man to judge those on the outside of the church? Are you to judge those inside? He wants them to judge the man who committed immorality and kick him out of the church. they got to make a judgment. In chapter 6, verse 5, I'll say this to shame you, it's possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute. Remember, they're taking each other to court. 
Paul says you should be able to make judgments about these small, petty property matters. So he's not saying, you know, nothing about judgment. Rather, the kinds of judgment that must cease are those that they are currently making about Paul and his ministry. It's impossible to... We, we can judge... We can look at Paul and, and see if he's faithful to the, to the gospel. We can look at any preacher or any teacher or anyone and say, are they teaching the truth? But ultimately, it's impossible to judge their ministry as to success or failure or what's going on. You know, we... It's our favorite thing, you know. I, we see a person out here, and oh well, this guy failed because he, you know, look what he did, or look what, you know. And sometimes those things may be true, but ultimately, it's God who has to make the final judgment. We can't always just look at success and failure, or this or that, or what happens, and be sure or know, because they serve their master, and he says at that time each will receive their praise from God. All right, let's stop here, and we will pick this up next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today, and we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, his faithfulness to the task, and his stewardship of the gospel. We pray you'll give us the same kind of heart that he had, that we'll be faithful to the truth that we've been giving and we know and that we learn here in this church. And we'll have the right motives for what we do. And we'll seek to build CBC so that it might honor and glorify you. Give us the kinds of hearts we need and the wisdom we need to do this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.